The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation, and they shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, Look, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. Then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. Well, happy 4th of July weekend, Heritage. I'm so glad that you're here this weekend, as you can see, with kind of a, a different platform arrangement and some different experiences that we've already shared in together today, that this is a, a different, a special weekend here. And I'm so glad that you've joined us for this uh, Independence Day weekend as we engage in the things of Scripture together. I've had the chance to meet many of you over the past few weeks. For those of you who I haven't had the chance to meet, my name's Jeremiah, and I get to be part of the Heritage team here. Uh, I serve as our discipleship pastor or as our spiritual transformation journey pastor. That's a mouthful, uh, depending on who you ask. I also get to serve, as you can see, based on my, my chrome dome and the fact that I'm standing here as one of our teaching pastors. Um, I love getting to be part of the Heritage Church. My family and I have been so welcomed and, uh, and engaged by you guys. We're so thankful for you and for this opportunity. But of all the things that I get to do and engage in, my favorite ministry roles and titles are as Sarah's husband and as Jubilee's and Zechariah's dad. I love being a husband and a father. And though I don't have them up here on the platform with me, I would love for you to meet my kiddos at least via picture. So you're going to see a couple of pictures pop up here of Jubilee and Zechariah. Yeah, you get it. You're supposed, when that happens, you're supposed to ooh and ah. Okay, congrats. Good job. Yes. Um, they are just such fantastic aspects of my life. I love that I get to be their dad. And Jubilee, at four and a half years of age, is to the point now where she can start to really understand some of the things surrounding fire safety. So her mom and I have been working really intentionally trying to help her understand uh, fire safety. So Jubilee knows that if there's ever a house fire, she's supposed to scoot out of her room without grabbing her favorite stuffed lammy, without grabbing her favorite little book, without grabbing uh, you know any clothes or hiding or anything like that. She's just supposed to get out of the house, meet her mom, her brother, and I in front of our neighbor's house in front of their tree. She can tell you that. If you asked her that today, she'd let you know that that's what she's supposed to do. And we even brought in professionals to come in and share about this. At her preschool, they brought in firefighters for Firefighter Day who showed up in their turnout gear and talked all about uh, how to be safe in your home when it came to matters of fire. And, uh, and so I was so pleased when she ran up to me one day and she said, Daddy, Daddy, do you know what you're supposed to do if your clothes are ever on fire? And I said, no, I don't know. You tell me. And she said what you all know, right? She said, first you stop then you, and then you. Now, some of you don't know that, and so Jubilee's going to be hosting a, a clinic after this gathering to share with you that if your clothes are ever on fire, you stop, drop, and roll. And so I was thrilled, and just before I started to applaud her brilliance, she continued. She said, if your clothes are ever on fire, you stop, drop, and roll, and then you go over to your dresser, open the drawer, and if your clothes are still on fire, then you do it again. 
how did that happen? I mean, we had, like I said, we had professionals talking to her about this. We thought we did a pretty great job. My dad is a retired professional firefighter, and if he heard that story, he'd be so disappointed in me, right? That, that somehow, despite what I feel are, are very intentional, very clear communications, my four-year-and-a-half-year-old daughter came to the conclusion that her clothes in her dresser are in very great danger of spontaneously combusting. And that if she rolls around on the floor, it will somehow extinguish the flames. I don't know how that happens. I'm sure for you, there have been times when you've tried to communicate with great intention and great clarity to someone, and what you say and what is received are somehow very different. Has that ever happened to you? For, for a few of us, it has anyway. It might be happening right now. There are moments, though, in my life where it feels as though God is clearly communicating that he has something to say, that there's some direction, some opportunity, some leadership, some next step that he desires to lead me or my family into, and yet somehow it seems that between his perfect transmission of that message and my reception, things get messed up a little bit. And as I begin to take those steps and move in what I thought I understood, it becomes clear that I somehow either got ahead of him or, or misunderstood. And I don't know about you, but those are really challenging moments. Have you ever felt as though you're, you're hoping God is speaking to you? You're hoping that he has a message, a, an opportunity, a moment for you. And yet somehow when, when it comes to that moment, it feels like things somehow got lost in translation. The challenge for us when it comes to what God is saying to us is that kind of missing it has far greater ripple and far greater challenge than a four and a half year old missing a few things about fire safety. It can, can kind of mess with the whole trajectory of our lives. You know, we're in this Acts Church on Fire series, and at the heart of this series, at the heart of really every series that we get to be a part of at Heritage, there is the sense among us that the Holy Spirit still speaks today. And we believe that the Holy Spirit still speaks today and that he uses his word to do that. So we spend time each week in his word. But I'm going to take that one step further. And I'm going to remind us that the Holy Spirit is speaking right now. The Holy Spirit is speaking right now. And that's the first of the fill-ins in your, in your sermon note guide if you're following along that way. You'll notice as you're looking through that sermon note guide that we've given a little bit of extra white space this week because we believe the Holy Spirit is speaking right now. And we believe he's speaking to you right now. I want to give you opportunity to just jot down some of the things that you hear his spirit whisper to yours. But I know that there are times in our lives when we, when we think things or we engage in things or we're just so overwhelmed with the challenges and realities of life that we can be positioned so that we don't really hear what he's saying to us. And as I said, there's a great ripple to that. So I'm going to take just a moment right now, knowing that the Spirit of God is here, knowing that He has a message for you and me, I'm going to pray that He would give us ears that hear, okay? So let's pray together for just a moment. Holy Spirit, thank You for who You are. Thank You for Your desire to communicate to us, for Your perfect communication to us. I pray that You would give each of us in this place today ears that hear, and hearts that receive what you have to say. God, anoint us as your children. Anoint us as your servants. Anoint us as hearers and doers of the word in the way that only your spirit can do. God, we know you are speaking. We desire to hear you right now. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Now, as we're engaging in this story in Acts, we're going to be in Acts chapters 6 and 7 today. And what's just happened as we've, uh, as we've been tracking along with this in the story is a group of believers, a couple of disciples, have been used by God to perform an incredible miracle that threatened some of the religious establishment, so they had them severely flogged. And those two people who were severely flogged, who were, who were whipped, leave that moment, and they say, we can't believe we were counted worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus, which is an incredible, incredible moment. And before we read the very next thing that happens in chapter 6 in the book of Acts, I want to point out to you as you're looking at your sermon notes guides that you are holding in your hand, in those few snippets of Scripture, just a few verses from chapter 6 and 7 of the book of Acts, Right there before you, you are holding right now more scripture at one time in one place than many of our brothers and sisters in the world will ever have opportunity to hold at one time in one place in their whole lifetime. You, right now, on those couple of pages, are holding more scripture than some of our brothers and sisters will ever hold at one time. Isn't that huge? I think that's because the governments of persecuted Christians are more convinced that the Holy Spirit is speaking through his word right now than many of us are. But I believe he wants to speak to us today, and so I'm excited to lean into what he has to say as we continue in the story. So in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, this is what we read. In those days... When the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now, this can kind of seem like a sideways conversation at first. It's, it's kind of surprising. People are being, you know, like healed in a tremendously amazing, miraculous ways. God is doing amazing things in and through the church. And then we kind of bump up against this challenge, which is really an opportunity in disguise for the church. There are a couple of groups who are making Jerusalem home at this time. There's a group of what you just read are Hebraic Jews, and that's basically Jews who follow Hebrew customs. And there are Greek Jews or Hellenistic Jews who are Jews that follow more Greek customs. And what we need to know for this conversation is that there exists a tension between those two groups. And somehow in the midst of that tension, one of the most marginalized aspects of this first century society, widowed women, women who have no legal recourse, who have no, no legal right to find work, no way to provide for themselves or their families... If they are widowed, they rely on older family members or they rely on the generosity of the synagogue so that they can eat every day. And in the midst of this challenge and tension between these two groups, widows are going hungry. They're not getting their daily allotment of food. It's, it's not just a little blip on the radar. It's actually a rather significant thing for those widows, wouldn't you think? And so the church becomes aware of this, and uh, they, the, the Greek Jews who are believers kind of approach the leaders of the church, and they let them know that this is happening. And so the leaders of the church kind of say, we are engaging in really significant ministry, but this is really significant ministry too. So what you need to do is gather the whole church, and they gather the whole church. All of the, all of the disciples gather together, which is a huge thing when you realize they were there were a group of them who were just flogged for calling on the name of Jesus. They gather the whole church, and they say, pick from among you seven men who are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and choose them 
to help deal with this situation. And what I want to point out for us in that is the church is really young at this point. The, the Holy Spirit hasn't been given all that long ago. And yet somehow the 12 leaders of the church are convinced that they will find seven men whose primary defining characteristics early on in the life of the church are that they are full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit. And what that reminds me and should remind us is that our ability to be used by the Holy Spirit as agents of the Holy Spirit, as people full of wisdom, is not connected to the amount of time we've been following Jesus, but says much more about our need for a posture of obedience and leaning into him. He can use any one of us if we seek his spirit and his wisdom in amazing ways. So this is, they propose this, and this is what is said in the following uh, verses, in verse chapter 5. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Pomenus, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. I want us to pause here for just a moment. As we've been talking through the different realities of an Acts church on fire, Pastor Sean has been reminding us that each of us is born challenged in our relationship with God, and that because of things that we've all thought, done, and said, there exists this gap between us and God, a God who desires relationship with us, but because of that sin, there's a gap. That reality wasn't good enough for God, so he sent his son Jesus to die for us so we could cross from death to life and know open and amazing relationship with God. But that the story doesn't end there. That the whole gospel actually pulls us out a little bit and that when we are seeking Jesus and following him, we will become more and more aware that there's a second gap that exists. That there's the, the gap of culture, the gap of language, the, the gap of different challenges. And that as we live saved, we are also to live sent in addressing the second gap. In helping people cross the second gap so they can engage with the person of Jesus. And what's just happened here for the church is that they've identified and engaged in a second gap. They've identified, they've found and engaged in a second gap. These widows who they're engaging with, these widows who we're talking about, they are desperate for the person of Jesus. They just don't know it yet because they can't see their need for Jesus past their hunger. They can't see beyond their own physical hunger to the need for Jesus. And so the church identifies and engages in this second gap, and the way that they do it is amazing to me. You notice all those names that we talked about, Stephen, etc., all the ones who were mentioned as those who were going to be leading the charge? If you, if you look at their names, you kind of quickly begin to recognize that most likely this is a group of men who were part of the Greek Jewish culture, who were part of the ones who were offended, but also a part of the church that not the whole church was even aware was there. The church may not even have been fully aware that this group of believers was existing among them, and yet the Holy Spirit in his wisdom and power identifies these seven men as the tip of the spear in meeting the second gap as the church does that for the first time with intention. And I cannot help but think of how God has positioned Vida Nueva to be the tip of the spear as heritage engages in meeting the second gap in this season. And how he's using a part of the body some of us may not even really have been fully aware is there. And he's going to do amazing, incredible things for the sake of his name. I can't wait to see what he does. I want to give you a little bit of a taste of what happened in the early church when they did this. 
in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, right out on the heels of this engaging in the second gap, we see this. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is amazing. As the church engaged in the second gap, something happened. The, the person of Jesus, the hope of Jesus, the reality of Jesus became real to those around them. So real, in fact, that we just read that a number of priests, a multitude of priests, those who at one point were in stark opposition to the reality of this Jesus, those who, who we would think are beyond hope and beyond reaching at this point. No, Scripture says a multitude of them became obedient to the faith as the church is faithful and leaning in to the opportunities God gives them. It's, it's this incredible reality that we start to see here. And things just keep moving along at a fast pace. It's really exciting and amazing. In verse 8, we see this now. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power. What a cool description. A, man's, a man full of God's grace and power performed great signs and wonders among the people. Whoa. Right? I'm starting to like the Stephen guy. He's, he's articulate. We, we see him described as one full of the Spirit of God and wisdom, as a man full of faith and the Spirit, and now one who has a spirit of power and can perform miraculous wonders and signs. This is an amazing guy. And if I were writing the story, if, if it were up to me, what would happen next in Stephen's life? This guy would be getting a book deal pretty quick. He would be on the O network and eventually on a syndicated daytime talk show where life would just keep getting better and better and better for him. And then eventually he would change the whole world as God builds his platform. And I think in the way that many of us approach ministry and, and reality in the, in the ministry world in North America, that's kind of what we expect and that's what we would say is the mark of success, a bigger platform, greater wealth, greater opportunity. And yet what we see that actually takes place here is, is surprising to us. There's this, there's this moment where everything starts to shift a little bit. And, it, and for me, this is one of those moments in Scripture where I wonder if, if I've been mispositioned and I misheard and the message clear from transmission has gotten garbled in reception. But what we see that happens is that great opposition rises up as the church is engaging in the second gap. Great opposition rises up, and it actually rises up from within one of those Greek Jewish synagogues. I believe the Holy Spirit was convicting them as they were seeking to live saved and not sent, as they were choosing religion over relationship. But the reality is this challenge occurs when this group of, uh, of the synagogue pulls Stephen aside. They start to argue with him, and then... And then they pay people to lie about him in open court, falsely accusing him of crimes against Judaism and crimes against the temple. Talk about a hard left turn, right? We went from moving at a fast clip to all of a the sudden there's this challenge. And one of the things that highlights for me, and it's worth us kind of at least understanding at this point, is that when the church engages in the second gap, what we are doing is we are taking the kingdom of light and hope into places of darkness. And the kingdom of darkness doesn't like that very much. And so we shouldn't be surprised as we engage in the second gap that opposition might arise and maybe even from some surprising places. 
That doesn't mean that, that we're doing something wrong or bad. It means actually that we are taking good ground for the sake of Jesus. Still, it's surprising when we see how all of this lays out here. Stephen, in his interaction with them, he shares with them that the temple isn't the true presence of God, but that Jesus is. He lovingly calls them to more. And the scriptures say that the people he was talking to, the group of religious leaders called the Sanhedrin, were so incensed with this proclamation that Jesus is the true presence of God that they gnashed their teeth at him. How angry do you have to be that your immediate response is that you're going to gnash your teeth at somebody? Have you ever done that in all your life? If you have, we'll talk later. But I don't know that I've ever been that overcome with anger to take that response, but that's what happens here. Things, it's an indication things are going to get really bad really fast, really interesting really fast. As they (laughs) gnash their teeth at him, this is what we see next. Stephen, verses 55 and 56 of chapter 7. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said. I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Whoa. If you're not overwhelmed by that in this moment, reread that passage. What we've seen, I'm going to come over here to the chart again. What we're seeing here as we've been talking through this is that you and I, as we engage in Jesus, he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, empowered by the same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead, has a vision of heaven. And his vision of heaven is that the Son of Man, Jesus himself, is standing at the right hand of God the Father. This is huge. You don't see this play out in Scripture very many times at all. And what it indicates to us from a literary perspective is that something big is about to happen. And what it indicates to us from a, from a follower of Jesus' perspective is that Jesus is right now standing. That Jesus is right now engaging as the true judge, the true leader, the true seat of government. That Jesus is right now actively engaged in the affairs of his people. That the things you and I do, that the things you and I are part of, Jesus right now is seeing it's an, this is an incredible moment. We're going to come back to that in just a second. The people don't like what they hear when Stephen says that for a whole host of reasons we don't have time to unpack right now. And their response is to grab Stephen. They literally pick him up and haul him out of the city It must have felt for him as people were grabbing at him as though his limbs literally would be torn from his body as this angry mob grabs him, carries him, and takes him outside of the city where they would throw him into a pit at least as tall as he was. And as Stephen is there in the pit, his accusers, those paid witnesses who falsely testified against him, were the first to pick up a a large and heavy stone large enough to do damage to a human body, small enough to be thrown with some accuracy. And they begin to stone him to death. 
what's happening? How, how did we go from Stephen at the top of the New York Times bestseller list to Stephen at the bottom of a pit in about a minute? How did that, how did that happen? We've got to back out for just a moment and remember that Jesus is standing that Jesus right now, the Son of Man, is saying everything is okay. Everything is all right. I'm not just going to make things right, but everything is right in this moment. That he's in charge, he's in control, and though it's challenging and difficult to understand that somehow Jesus is in the process. He's positioned Stephen to bring him glory in this moment. And we see that in what takes place next. In verse 59 of chapter 7. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he had, he had fallen asleep. While they were stoning him. While they were stoning him. I don't want to be too graphic, but as heavy rocks are crushing human bone and tearing human flesh, as the very life of Stephen is leaving his body, he doesn't do what I would do. In that moment, I think I would be crying out to God, what happened? What have I done? What, what did I do that caused me to be here and so so experiencing your disfavor, God. That's not Stephen's perspective. Stephen has a sense that Jesus, the one who stands, the one who's in control, the one who sees all, the one who is making all things new right now, that Jesus is there present with him in that moment. And he cries out to him. He says, Jesus, take my spirit. And more than that, oh God, don't hold the sin against them. I don't even know where to begin or how to process that. But it's an incredible moment where we see that even in that moment, Jesus is using something that, that the people around Stephen meant for harm, meant for evil, and Jesus is going to use it for great good. And there are aspects of our lives as we listen to this message, there are aspects of our lives where we wonder if God could ever take the pain, the challenge, and the issue, things that other people have done to us and meant them for great evil. We wonder, could it be that God could ever take that and use it for great good? And what we see in Stephen's story is absolutely, and sooner than we might think. The story uh, continues after this in chapter 8, and it says, on that day, great persecution broke out against the church. In this, this moment, Stephen is the first martyr, the first one to give his life for the name of Jesus. And somehow that became the catalyst for great persecution to break out against the church. Again, people meaning great harm to the body of Christ. And yet God uses it for good immediately. As the church experiences persecution, God uses that to scatter them, to to disperse them. They had been kind of huddled in this little sacred space in Jerusalem. And God uses this persecution moment to push the church out of what is comfortable and to fulfilling the mission and the mandate that he gave them when he said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Samaria and Judea and to the ends of the earth. God takes what was meant 
for evil, for challenge, and he uses it for his good and for his glory. In, in an incredible moment here. We may wonder why this story is placed where it is. It's, it's kind of in an interesting placement in the book of Acts, if you've been following along in our monthly reading plan with that. that this chapter kind of separates God doing amazing things and God doing amazing things, but in one, in one chapter it's pre-persecution, and in the next this persecution is broken out against the church. And I wonder what Stephen would say to us if he could be here in this moment, if he were on this platform instead of me. I wonder what our brothers and sisters around the world who who would be hearing this story, our brothers and sisters who right now are enduring persecution, what they would say. Because you see, the the first believers who heard this and and our brothers and sisters around the world who would be seeing this, they're not like us hearing this story and trying to put context on something that's in a far-off place to a far-off people. But they're experiencing persecution in real time. Experiencing things worse than death and torture. And I think what they would say to us, if they were here, and what the Holy Spirit, I believe, would speak to us right now as He speaks, is this question. As we celebrate Freedom Weekend, what will you, church, do with your freedom? What will we do with our freedom? They would find it incredibly encouraging that Jesus, the risen one, stands and actively actively engages. And I think in the light of the things that our brothers and sisters are facing, you know there are 322 on average followers of Jesus who die every month just because they call on the name of Jesus. Around the world, an average of 322 followers of Jesus are martyred. If you want to know more about how to engage with that, how to pray for them, how to offer encouragement and what we can do, you'll want to check out the left panel of your worship folder. There are a few websites there that you can look at and find out how to send letters and how to pray and what you can do to help our brothers and sisters who suffer. But the reality is this for us. If they were here today, I think they would look at the things that challenge us in the North American church, the things that we call a war on Christianity, the things that we think are such a a huge deal that keep us from advancing the cause of Jesus, and they would ask us, what will you do with your freedom? with the great opportunity that God has given you, what will you do with your freedom to engage in the second gap, though it's costly? What will you do with your freedom to to live out the hope of who Jesus is? What will you do with your freedom so that this day matters? I think that's what the Holy Spirit is asking us. It's, I believe, what they would ask us as well. In your sermon note guide by uh, by the notes portion, There's this quote, I'm going to read it to you, it's by David Platt. He says this, Radical obedience to Christ is not comfort, not health, not wealth, and not prosperity in this world. Radical obedience to Jesus risks losing all these things. But in the end, such risk finds its reward in Christ. And he is more than enough. For us. Do we really believe that? 
Do we leverage the freedom God has given us in such a way where we would say, come what may, we will be found faithful? Leaning into the opportunities that God has for us. I believe with all my heart that the Holy Spirit is speaking right now to us. But more than that, I believe that he desires to speak through us. The Spirit of God isn't just speaking right now. He desires to speak right now through us. And we can mistake that as a, as a call to go out and stand on some street corner and, and proclaim the gospel. But the way the Spirit of God desires to speak through us, I think, is, is more than that in this way. That you and I would live our lives in humble submission to Jesus, empowered by the Spirit of God, engaging in the second gaps around us. That we would live a life where we are day in and day out, first and foremost, citizens of heaven. Where we are day in and day out, giving ourselves away, no matter the cost, no matter the pain, no matter the challenge, believing that Jesus stands that whatever we're facing, Jesus is leading, Jesus is speaking, Jesus is using us. And when we allow ourselves to be used by the Holy Spirit of God, we find a kind of adventure and purpose most of us only dream of. Yes, it costs. Yes, it positions us for opposition. Yes, it can be hard, but it is so worth it. And we find that Christ is more than enough for us. That's our great prayer for you. It's my prayer for me, that Jesus would be enough and that I would be found obedient as he calls me to the second gap and as he calls us to the second gap. That we would be obedient and we would hold our freedom with an open hand and, and we would be willing to engage in challenging situations for the sake of the name of the one who loves us. In just a few moments, we're going to participate as a body in communion. Communion is a special, sacred moment. We call it communion because we believe that when we participate in this, in this means of grace, that the Holy Spirit communes with our spirit, that we are somehow almost mystically connected to the Spirit of God as a body when we do that. But we call it communion because we also believe that we are communing with one another. That when we participate in communion, we connect with the body of believers in a way that we can't otherwise do. Not just the body of believers at Heritage, but as, as we partake of the elements which represent the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, that we are connecting with the whole body of believers some of whom are having their own blood shed and their own bodies broken, that we are connecting with them in a way we can perhaps never understand, but that the Spirit of God who is alive in us is alive in them. The Spirit of God who's in this place is in other local bodies around the world, and when we participate in communion, we join with them as followers of Jesus. And so as we step into that moment today, I want to pray for us. And I want to ask the Holy Spirit to continue to speak to us now and in those moments and as we leave this place, that we would be found faithful as those who the Spirit of God is speaking through. Would you pray with me, please? God, again, we come before you. Again, we are 
overwhelmed and amazed at how powerful, how wonderful, how great you are. God, as we prepare our hearts to participate in communion, God, your word reminds us that we're to first ask you to search us. So I pray for those who are brothers and sisters in you in this moment that you would search and know us. Show us if there's any offensive way in us so we can be made right with you. And I pray for those in this place who, God, they came in here today not not sure about Jesus, not sure uh, about the whole church thing, and yet you have been speaking to them. And I pray that you would help them in this moment to proclaim you, Jesus, as the one who who rescues, who redeems, and who leads them. And maybe this day they would participate for the first time in full communion with you and your body. God, we think of our brothers and sisters in the church who are persecuted. We pray that you would gird them up, that you would strengthen them and use them in, in incredible ways. God, we ask for your grace in us as well. That you would show us what it means to have you speak through us every day, in every moment, as we live for you. May we bring you pleasure and glory today, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.